Finding Well-Being Through Financial Empathy with Dr. Michael Jean Thomas. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. This was such a fun and exciting interview with Dr. Michael Thomas. You can hear the empathy, the compassion, and his passion as it comes oozing through the speakers as he talks. He discusses how we can set and prioritize real goals that align with our true authentic selves, how we can focus our money on joy, and how to avoid the marketers that are always wanting to come in our pockets. And he leaves us with some ideas on how we can all aspire to use money as a tool to create wholeness in our lives. Enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Michael Thomas. Yeah. I'm going to read Michael's, Dr. Thomas's bio here, and then we're going to get into a conversation as he has some great insights to the world of personal finances and has been doing some fantastic work. When you first meet Dr. Michael Thomas, his warm, kind smile and frequent laughs are signature to his identity. On the outside, Dr. Thomas is an outwardly easygoing man, but inwardly, Dr. Thomas is driven to make a meaning in the lives of those who have the least financial resources. He cares about ensuring that the vulnerable populations have access to financial services, a resource that only affluent usually enjoy. Dr. Thomas has a PhD in financial planning, is a lecturer at the University of Georgia. He is the founder of Modem Financial, co-creator of several financial literacy programs, and the recipient of numerous awards such as the Outstanding Financial Information Award. Dr. Thomas' commitment to service has taken him to many places, whether that was presenting in boardrooms, jails, college auditoriums, national conferences, small groups, alternative schools. Service to others is what he knows. Service to others is what Dr. Thomas does best. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I, definitely, I definitely appreciate it. Yeah, I, I'm excited to have you. We had uh, one of your co-podcast guest on the podcast a few months ago, uh, Dr. Love Matt it. Gorin, and he highly suggested you. So I'm glad that uh, you're able to make some time. Yeah. You know what? If, if you had Matt on, you really don't need me, but uh, I, I appreciate, I appreciate Matt. <laughs> Interesting. He said the same thing about you. <laughs> no, Matt, Matt is, Matt is awesome. He knows his stuff. Um, so my first question is going to be around um, stories and the, the power of story. So on the show, we often talk about the idea of we all have a story, our own personal stories, whether that's money stories or life stories. Right now, it's January 2020. Can you just share with our audience a few chapters of your story that have influenced and impacted you to be the individual in that bio that we just we just read there? Yeah, I think the I think the best story that in, encapsulates me is is one in my youth where uh, I had to earn uh, an allowance every week. 
And there was this particular toy that I wanted at the toy store. And literally I would go like, it was right next to the grocery store. And at that time we, we stayed in North Carolina and I would always ask my mom to go in and to see this particular toy. And I knew how much it costs. And she said, well, if you do these chores, I'll let you earn the money and you, you can go and buy the toy. Well, I didn't really negotiate with my mother in terms of what my pay would be. Mm-hmm. So my time horizon was off because I was thinking one week <laughs> I get the money and I can go to the toy store and get the toy. Uh, so I work one week and my mom gives me the money, but it wasn't enough. And we go to the store, to the toy store and I see the toy that I want. And I'm like, man, it's going to take me another week to get this toy. Uh, but I really wanted to buy something. Right. But I knew that this was the toy of my dreams at that point in time. <laughs> but I really wanted to buy something because <laughs> I had this money burning a hole in my pocket, as my mom would say. She was like, well, I'm going to allow for you to make the choice. You can either you can either wait another week to earn the money that you need to buy the toy. Because she told me I'm not giving you anything. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not splitting this halfway. And then I walked around the store, I moped, I had an attitude, whatever it may be. And then he's like, you know what? I'm just, and I told my mom, I'm just going to get something else. Right. So I go, I get something else. I get home. I remember it. I'm, I'm taking it out the package and I play with it for maybe 20 minutes. And then all of the sudden, like that high that I had when I was at the store purchasing the thing, just like completely went away. And I was distraught over the fact that I bought this thing (laughs) that didn't provide me the utility and the joy that I thought that it would. So that meant that if I wanted to actually get the toy that I wanted now, instead of being one week away from getting it, now I'm two weeks away from getting it, all counted for three weeks away from getting the thing that I actually wanted. So that actually has, has stuck with me uh, because I, I learned very quickly to be patient for the things that you want mm-hmm. uh, because the things that you want are the things that are really going to provide you the most fulfillment or most joy, hopefully, if it's, if it's rooted in what you want and not what's been marketed to you or what society has told you that you should have. And that's going to bring you joy and contentment because that usually doesn't, that just kind of keeps us in this revolving will of consumerism. Um, so I've, I've learned, I, I, re, I very rarely will give in to getting something that's in the middle. I would rather wait because I know that if I'm not satisfied, it pushes, if I, if I make a satisfying decision, so to speak, I won't be satisfied and it pushes the main thing off into the future. Uh, And time, I believe, is one of our biggest assets. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I would rather um, go through the grind because it does feel that way until you've actually received the reward. And there's not a better feeling in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's almost like you want to do it again. Yeah. It's like if you're like you've probably been there. It's like if you've ever saved for a vacation, that's like off into the future. But in between, there's all these other things that you can do that can take away from that. 
to the point to where you might not go on the vacation or you not, might not be able to enjoy it as fully because you decided to make these satisfying decisions in the, in, 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 yeah. in the immediate time. But if you were able to kind of hold off and actually go and experience the vacation and be present, I call it getting over on getting to the opposite side of the hill. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not a better feeling in the world and everything in you tells you, I want to do this again, right? <laughs> yeah. If deferring means that I get this, I'm good. <laughs> so I've been able to get over the top of the hill. And my biggest encouragement for, for people, uh, I, I, I generally say that um, saving for your goals doesn't necessarily feel good. But when you achieve them, it feels sexy as hell. <laughs> I'm just being honest. It yeah. does. There's... I'm, there's just not a better feeling because all those other things, you don't go, you don't get to the end of the year and say, man, I missed out on McDonald's, <laughs> I man, I missed out on that, whatever it may be, because those small transactions add up, right. Or small things add up, but you never, I don't know anybody who got to the end of the year and said, man, I missed out on the small things. Mm -hmm. If anything, you get to the end of the year and said, man, I wish I would have, so I could have done this instead. And if there's something to be said about that, because it fosters connection, mm. whether connection with self or connection with others. Uh, and there's just not a lot of spaces where, especially nowadays, where we can just be present and connected in meaningful ways. So I, I enjoy that. Mm -hmm. That story is, in essence, really kind of what propels me um, in the way I manage my finances and things like that today. So I hope that, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, that does. And I love that story. Yeah. And as you were talking about it with the, the as your child self, um, I was thinking about yeah. my four-year-old who <laughs> has the same sort of thing going on as you get that toy and he brings it home and he no longer wants to play with it because onto the next thing, couldn't wait for the yes. real toy. But as you were saying that, I'm like, holy smokes, this is like, this is adults as well. And then you went right into that part. And I think it's such a good example of, um, it is adults. um, that I actually, what I want to pull out of there is your, your comment on Foster's Foster's connection. And I yeah. really pulled that out for a couple of reasons. And I'd like to get your, I guess, commentary on this is, um, consumerism has consumed us. And by the way, the marketers must not like you because you can, you can avoid them. <laughs> yeah, I'll, talk, I'll speak to that. <laughs> and so consumerism has consumed us and we're just, we don't, sometimes we don't know what we want. So we just buy what the consumer, our marketers want us to buy. Yep. But on the other end, I've seen people get so sick of consumerism that they've gone like straight to that extreme frugality where it's yeah, like, no, 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 no. Even beyond minimal, like almost like, not understanding why they are doing it other than they're frustrated with the consumerism. And what yeah. I, I like this fosters connection yeah. is, you know, you said about uh, even your Hill example. Um, it, it, like when we embark on a journey, you said it feels good when you look at the end of the year and you're on vacation, you said no to all those things. Yeah. I think that along the way, what I've noticed is though, yeah, that vacation is good, but what I've learned on why I'm saying no, how I'm saying no, for me, that fostering connection along the way is actually more to me, sometimes more important than the vacation in and itself, which is sometimes is you don't expect those learnings to come out of it. So I guess for me, 
I, my question is to you, this, this idea of gl- delayed gratification is, do I delay gratification? Do I retire and have fun way out in the, the future or do I enjoy myself now? How do you um, make sure that you're maximizing that fostering connection, Absolutely. also saving, but also you talked about time, having the time now, but also realizing time in the future, you're, you're going to be that your future self as well. So where do you find that balance of today I want to enjoy myself, but also I don't want to succumb to all these purchases that are not going to allow me to go on the vacation. I think that that's a great, that's a great conversation. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think to, to encapsulate it, I have a saying uh, that I, that I post quite frequently is, is something really sacrifice if you receive a harvest in the end. Mm, That's really right. I just, I, I, and I, and I have to remind myself of this all the time. Is 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 something? Am I really sacrificing if I receive a harvest in the end? Mm-hmm. And and that's literally how I reframe the way that I think about the very personal things that I aspire to do on an annual basis. Mm-hmm. Literally, and I think one of the most important things that is slept on, so to speak, as the young people will say, um, (laughs) is that most people don't give themselves the space to understand their authentic self. Mm. So literally, how can you be very clear on where you want to go if you're not rooted in self-awareness? Mm-hmm. And literally, that is the only difference between me and other people. I literally believe that self-awareness is the foundation for financial well-being. I agree. Because if, you're, if you are self-aware, meaning that you can block out the noise and actually to, to still be able to hear the signal, right? Because you're so in tune with self, then you can navigate the noise and still get to whatever it is that you aspire to have in your life. So when we talk about being balanced, me being balanced is is really just me understanding me and not being ashamed of the fact that my idea of a good weekend is to listen to an audio book and go on a run mm-hmm. on a long run, right? My idea of a good weekend it's to play board games with the kids and my wife because it takes us out of parenting mode and we can just laugh and giggle <laughs> and be silly, right? There, there's, there's nothing like, because that's friendship forming. So I'm your parent, but we also want to eventually evolve into this friendship and this relationship that's beyond that, right? For me, I'll be honest with you, going on a quiet walk in the woods is life. Mm -hmm. because I've taken the time to get to know me and what charges me up. So if something is marketed to me, I can easily say, does this align with who I am? Yay or nay? No. And if something is marketed to me that can add value to the flow of my life, not aspirationally, but already what is, Mm. then that's something I can consider. So marketing doesn't really bother me because I'm not going to bite on anything that doesn't make sense with the flow of my life, right? So if we're rooted in self, if we really understand what's, what's meaningful to us, 
there really is no psychological, I call it the psychological and emotional gap of marketing, meaning that marketing generally uh, creates this hole that's not real, but our brains perceive it as being real, meaning that what initially was baseline is no longer baseline and it's created this deficit mm-hmm. that's, that's literally psychological. And then what happens is with marketing strategies, now we're trying to figure out outside of us and based on everyone else, what makes everyone else happy. And then we're this perpetual loop of the marketer tries to send me something that's supposed to make me happy and it doesn't because somebody else was happy with it. So mm-hmm. I'm going to look to another friend. Oh, that makes them happy, right? They bought this. So I try to get it and it doesn't make me happy. Mm-hmm. This career choice, this job, this position, this title, I go for it. It doesn't make me happy, right? It's because our baseline is based on this, this illusion, right? That these things outside of you are going to make you happy. And the only way that we can close that gap is knowledge of self. And the more we do, do that, we close the gap, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about what you buy. So when you do that, having balance is, is easier because you know who you are and you know where you're going. And that's yeah. just a different way of thinking about this, but it has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And then once you know what that is, then you can use money as a conduit to connect you to the things that you really desire, that really bring you value, peace of mind, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's just, that's my approach. Big picture. Yeah. You know, I, I love that answer. And I think when we're not in alignment with ourselves, then yeah, you, you know, you always with that friend, what do they have? What do they have? What do they, Oh, that makes them happy. And I mean, we're, we're, we're I guess in a sense, hardwired to think that way from our ancestral yeah. her, tribe days of like, following the herd. Absolutely. And, We've evolved a lot, but I guess the brain hasn't fully evolved with us, and we have those tendencies. So, I think. And actually, can I speak to that? Yeah. Just on the flip side of it, so we were talking about minimalism, right? Right. So, what, what's happening here is that we're trying to make decisions where either someone tells us what makes us happy on one extreme, or the on the other extreme, we don't even want to think about or engage with, like you said, this process of even having. So, on both sides. We never kind of come into the middle to actually think about us. So we're actually avoiding this growth that needs to transpire so that we can really come to the middle and actually have some fulfillment. And in some instances, fulfillment is going to be less. And in other instances, it's going to be more. But there's power in thinking. Mm -hmm. There's power in terms terms of being mindful. And both of those extremes... You can literally operate live being mindless. What you're saying is I don't want to have to think, right? Mm -hmm. But when we, but again, to the point, when we are aligned with self, we actually minimize choice. Yes. Right. So we actually don't have to think, but we're in alignment with, with actually doing things that bring us joy and commitment that's uniquely rooted in us. And guess what? Our future self is going to be a little different. There's actually several studies that show like 10 years from now, what you think you may want is absolutely what you don't want. Right. It's just, but the, the beauty here though, is that if we're responsibly using money and our resources, we're setting money aside to enjoy our current future self while giving our future self the space to decide. Mm. And that's where the power is. A lot of times when we, when we think about our future self, 
We're trying to plan our future self based on the expectations that we have for today. So we actually kind of bottleneck our future self by thinking our future self is going to want what we want today. Yeah. But when we think about our future self is that I just want future self to have choice and options to make Mm. different decisions. Then that becomes a different way in how you purpose your money and how you think about future self and how you allow for yourself the space to grow and to continue to become and that never ends. Yeah. <laughs> we're constantly becoming, right? Yeah. So we want future self to have space for that. You know, I really like how you're framing that. Like we're constantly becoming and having your future self have the ability to make those, um, those ability to decide. Because yeah. like a lot of times the, the behavioral bias that we experience there is that hyperbolic discounting where we, we, we can't contextualize with our future self. And I've seen exercises where people are like, okay, these work like these imagery exercises, like imagine yourself at 60 years old, where are you living? Where are you going? And and I think they work, but I like what you're just distinguishing here is that doing that, I'm deciding currently what that future self is going to look like. And like you've clearly identified, we have no idea what that future self. We have, we have no idea. So this is, so this is where I think the rubber hits the road. Uh, I think the, the, the better strategy to use there is to very similar to how we'll say in a study uh, in 1950, a can of Coke was X in today's dollars. It's Y, mm-hmm. right? So we can actually do that with future self. I do this with my college students all the time. I literally have them research what they think their future self financially is going to look like post-graduation. Mm-hmm. So what I have, have them do is to think about the job that they're going to work, their expected salary. I encourage them to um, to calculate using time value of money calculations. Generally, what a gradual increase of that salary is going to be out to the future. We think about what taxes are going to be, and we reduce that. Right. We think about what living expenses are going to be into the future. I can estimate that we think about the impact of the student loans that we're taking now. So if you're a freshman and you already came in with $15,000 of student loans and it's your strategy to continue to do this, I have them think about if you continue to do this over four years, what's that balance going to look like? And then what's going to be your student loan payment, mm. right? And then what we do is we then take this, this actually well thought out spending plan and we bring it into the present. And we and I say, currently, right now, if this is your deficit, do you want this? <laughs> that, like, literally, like, that, right now, if this was your life right now, yeah. would you want this for yourself? Yeah. And they would say, I would, I would never live in an in a apartment that expensive. And, I, and generally, so if somebody has $50,000 worth of student loan debt, you're typically going to pay 1% of that a month on a 10-year repayment plan. So that's $500. So they actually get to see the consequence yeah. of their actions. And I make it so, I try to make it so visceral that they can actually feel the consequences mm-hmm. of their action now. So it's not a delayed feeling of the future, right? So I try to mitigate that hyperbolic discounting by getting them to think of their future selves today and say, would you want this for yourself now? And then a lot of students after that will say, you know what? I really need to start applying for scholarships. 
I really need to think of, be thinking about my major and how much I'm actually going to get paid in this space because I had inappropriate assumptions, mm-hmm. right? I didn't know how much cost of living was. I clearly, I clearly underestimated that. So what we're doing is we're pointing out all of these things that they don't have. Usually we, we underestimate those things. Yeah. We don't overestimate. No, yeah. So, and then another thing I have them do is then I have them, once they've created that, I have them go speak with their parents. Uh, and I've had several students write back to me that my mom and dad completely laughed at my spending plan because it's like, boy, you have no clue what the <laughs> real world is like, right? And then to have their parents kind of sew into them and have a relational conversation, right? Yeah. Because the, the fifth rule from the millionaire next door yeah. is that in order to become a millionaire is that your child needs to be financially stable. <laughs> so I'm actually helping parents out too by bringing them into the conversation helping them help their children so that we can create some generational wealth. So I try to mitigate uh, hyperbolic discounting by actually thinking about it from freedom. You yeah. have no money in the future. Is that how you want to live every weekend once you graduate? And they'll say no. Then how can we take everything we've been learning over the course of the semester and start applying it now? You actually have control over your present self and your future self. In fact, your future self is nothing but a series of actions of your present self. Mm -hmm. You have more power than you think. Mm -hmm. Own it. (laughs) And then we just drive the conversation. And you'll see students just start thinking differently about, man, I need to apply for these scholarships. I don't need to keep as much of my student loan disbursement. I'm not saying to send it all back. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is to really think about your semester and think about what you need and then add a little bit of what you may want and then send the rest back. Mm -hmm. Because most student loan balances actually can be mitigated by students not actually taking the full amount of their disbursements. Right. Yeah. If we did did nothing else, send 50% of that back, we could literally decrease the amount of the average student loan balance after four years by close to $10,000. That is, that's actionable. Mm-hmm. It's relatable, mm-hmm. but I just don't tell students just do it because again, to your point, it's no different than any other talking head who's telling you to do something that they can't see. Mm-hmm. So my idea of financial education is how do we make this obvious and visible? Very similar to Atomic Habits by James Clear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, how do we make it obvious? Mm-hmm. So obvious that it causes an emotional response. Right. And then we go from there. Yeah. You know that. In a good I, way. In a good <laughs> way. In a good way. <laughs> and, and I think it's so refreshing to hear your approach to education in college and around this invisible financial literacy or financial information of getting them emotionally engaged. And I think once we tap into those emotions and start feeling them feel what ourselves going to look like. And you're like, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> nothing, not, not that nothing can stop us, but that feeling is so much more powerful than someone told me I should do this. You know, that uh, internal locus of control when I'm like, ah, oh. yes. so I think what you're doing there is fantastic. It's a uh, shift of power. Shift of power. Yeah. And, and that, that frame again about saving you, you mentioned is giving your future self 
the opportunity to make decisions. Again, shifting the power, you're giving control. We love control, humans. (laughs) You're giving that future self control. So I really, really like that. Um, I want to switch gears kind of to one of the... What I found on the internet, so I'm hoping none of this is uh, lies, not lies, but uh, I guess a chapter in your your book, so to speak, of your life, yeah. uh, when you had a role as an auditor and a financial mm-hmm. aid person for, yeah. I believe it was a university or college. I, yeah. I have a quote here from an article that I read, and yeah. I, I would like to get your perspective on this. It says, as an auditor, I felt isolated. As a financial aid person, I felt we had very short window of time to help families. Yeah. So looking back at that chapter in your life story, uh, with all the new information you've acquired since then, what were you referring to when you said a feeling of isolation and a short window of time to help families? Yeah, yeah, great, great question. So as as an auditor, uh, usually when when you when you're on a company's calendar to come in for two weeks to sift through all of their financial information. Nobody wants you there. I'm just, I'm just going to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Like, no, like nobody, nobody's excited <laughs> that, you're, that you're walking through the door. Nobody is in, incredibly gracious and welcoming that you're knocking on someone's office or calling or emailing, say, hey, can you provide evidence of X? Yeah. Uh, we found a discrepancy here. Or there are these miscellaneous accounts, like what is housed in these? What are your internal procedures and controls to ensure that nothing is being pushed through uh, that shouldn't be by an employee? What do you have a dual signature process, right? So you're really looking at processes before you really dive into the audit. So what a lot of people understand about auditing is that it really provides a great value add. Because the the flow of this is that if you're a publicly traded company and you go to Yahoo Finance and you're looking at the financials that have been listed, right? Mm -hmm. Then those financials have gone through an auditing process where someone like me came in to ensure that that information is accurately reflecting the position, the health, the viability of a company. So this system is big. So, but we don't just address the numbers piece of it. We're actually looking at company systems as well. But my personality, in terms, of, like I'm, I am, a, I I hate to admit this. I am a people pleaser at heart. Right? <laughs> I I love for people to be comfortable around me, for to be able to engage. I, I'm not a very transactional person. I'm more a relational person. Right. So I don't like for things just to be transactional. I want there to be something meaningful here. So for me, it was just, it was just more transactional in, in that sense than relational. So mm-hmm. I felt isolated in terms of under actually getting to know me more and understanding that I couldn't be the best version of myself in that space because I'm more relational. Now, as it relates to financial aid, one of the things that I realized very early on is that a lot of families, honestly, don't really give a whole lot of thought to college affordability, which is incredibly unfortunate because I think that one of the most pivotal times for an entire family dynamic is making the choice to go to college for a number of different reasons. But the main reason 
is that not only do we have students going into debt, but we have families, moms and dads, who are taking out uh, loans as well to help cover the gap for their son or daughter to complete college. That's why I say it's so pivotal, because that means that we're creating indebtedness across generations now, even if one generation, mom and dad, hasn't completely paid off their student loan debt. Right. So what that does is that it limits, because if we're paying back on student loans across generations, then the then we're, we're actually potentially, depending on degree and earning potential and things of that nature, we actually don't have as much discretionary income and we don't see the full benefit of college education to actually put that money into investing in a type of way that we would need to. So mm-hmm. because families aren't thinking about a 529 savings plan or even really understanding or nudging their son and daughters to apply for scholarships, to think about cost of attendance, to really think about over four years, this is what we're looking at as a potential student loan balance if we go through with this process. Then if we do that, what's the impact on a family? What's the impact on mom and dad? What happens is, is that when we have to make decisions, and we talked about this prior to this, in a short period of time, the blinders come. Mm -hmm. So we don't actually, we can't see the big picture now. Cortisol shoots up, right? (laughs) Then we start making emotional decisions in a heat of a moment that, that can't unpack and think about the magnitude of this decision, yeah. both in the present and in the future. And because it becomes such a myopic decision, and you're constantly being inundated with communication saying, are you coming? Are you coming? Are you coming? Have you reviewed your financial aid award? Not just at one institution, several. There's pressure. There's community pressure. Someone else's son and daughter has already been accepted and has decided and they're going to UGA or they're going here. My son or daughter hasn't yet. So that actually creates pressure on parents mm-hmm. because when they engage in those conversations, nobody wants to say, well, we don't know what we're doing. yet." So then it creates this. Di- you see how this dynamic. Yeah. Then on the student end. Oh, I've been accepted. Your friends have and you haven't yet. And it creates more pressure. So we become more myopic, more myopic, more myopic. And then what happens when I say myopic, short sighted. Yeah. What happens is that then the decision becomes just getting in somewhere right? and not thinking about the financial consequences. And families literally do this in a six to seven month period. And this six to seven month period, speaking to the point that I made earlier, has a 50, 60, 70 year consequence. And you can't, and we got to step back. We can't. And so that's a part of why I decided to move into this space, because in my way of thinking, I think that it is we have to do more to help families think through not just the short term or midterm consequences of these financial decisions, but the long term consequences and to ensure that their decisions are in alignment with what their hopes actually are. Right. So they're making what they think is the best decision possible But you and I both know, unless we actually look at the numbers, we don't really know where this is going to take us or leave us. And that's if our son and daughter graduates from college. So that's another layer that we have to think about as well. Mm -hmm. There is no benefit 
of college if you don't finish. So now we have to step back and think about how about all of these families where mom and dad have took out, taken out a parent plus loan for a son or daughter who got through two years of school. So a parent could be $20,000 in a whole. Student could be twenty dollars or $30,000 in a whole, depending on where they attend it. And they will not receive the financial benefit of the college education. We, we have so many households in that position. So you're not getting the upside of the college education, meaning that your discretionary income is basically what it has been. So we spend the next 20 years digging out of this hole. Now we've lost 20 years to actually have invested that money. And by the time mom and dad retires, they have 10 years to do it. Guess what? Mom and dad, they're not retiring. Mm-hmm. And then son and daughter become sandwiched because they didn't finish. Their earnings capacity is capped. Now they're having to take care of mom and dad because mom and dad didn't have the resources to retire in a way that helps them to be. You see how this snowballs I, yeah. in, in a generational way. And so for me, I just noticed that there were a lot of families who were making these long term decisions. As, as I would think about it, and you would, because we enjoy this space and this stuff, yeah. and I don't, I don't expect everyone to, but we have to be able to, to help families see the scope of this sooner than later and to make decisions based on your, your child's competence, because college may not be, be the best option for them. Mm-hmm. They may be better off with the trade a year and a half in, they're out, they're doing something that they're good at, that they enjoy, that they love, that they see benefit and value. They are stable. Now you as mom and dad don't have to come out of pocket for the same type of investment. You have more money to save for your future. So now you can actually have something to pass off to them. And they're already building. So we're building generational wealth because grandchildren now can benefit. Mm -hmm. But if that doesn't happen, grandchildren don't benefit. And we create this cycle that becomes very, very difficult to stop. You know, uh, you are in alignment with your passions. I could hear it in your voice. I, we're on Zoom. I could feel it. And I, I'm so thankful that we have individuals like yourself who are advocating for this change because yep. we are against enormous social and financial systems that are creating barriers and constraints around these very topics that you're talking about. And, you know, as you're talking and me doing some reading on work that you've done, it, it's very easy. Like you, you, like you said, you and I can look at this and see the issue, but you have a lot of insight and, and I could, I know by the work that you're doing, um, you you work with individuals who might not have had access, whatever their life story is, to this information. And I think that's so incredible because often I hear on the other side is, well, we have these systems. Like you can get student loan fee payback or they can do their you know financial modeling to see how much debt they're going to be in. But the problem is, is like you talked about in your TED Talk is that's me now saying, oh, there's these systems in place. And like say it's me as a middle-aged white male saying, oh, you could have figured out all this stuff. We're going back to scarcity book where it talks about when you add scarcity, it increases the um, narrow blinders to make decisions. And we can't see that big scope that you're trying to do. So I really think it's wonderful that you're doing because I hear this often. It's like, oh, well, there was this assistant out there or there was this program. But what I really like, what I'd like you to talk about is just 
this concept of will you choose, as you, this is quoting you, will you choose to focus on the numbers or what's underneath? And I think that's so important for everyone to hear is that we all make financial decisions, life decisions, whatever it is, based on our current life circumstances. And my life circumstance is different than yours. Yours is different. We're all different. And if we, if maybe touch on that judgment and how like it really, having that judgment can just perpetuate these boundaries and constraints. Yeah, I, just a great point. I actually gave a, a keynote address for AFCP, which is the Association for Financial Counseling and Planning Education. Mm-hmm. And one of, one of the things that I'm, I'm working on and, and doing research in is uh, the area of financial empathy mm-hmm. and then also self-compassion and compassion generally and how that influences behaviors um, and then overall financial well-being. But to, to, the, to the meat of this, though, the reason why financial empathy or empathy is so important is because we live in a culture of shame. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and there's a difference between guilt and shame. Right. When, when, we're, when we feel guilt over something, we externalize ourselves from the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It's I made a mistake. Right. Right. When it's shame, it's I am the mistake. Mm-hmm. which are two different ways of thinking. And when we actually believe that way about ourselves and there's, and we exist in a toxic shaming environment, what it actually does is that it actually increases our cortisol, right? Mm-hmm. Which induces a flight or, or flight or fight or flock response, right? We're using our limbic system. This is our alligator brain. Mm-hmm. And we're not using our prefrontal cortex anymore, which is the part of the brain that we use to, to rationalize and to, to try to make, um, again, not myopic, but very broad and, and well thought out decisions about what's now and in what's in the future. So we actually, our, our capacity to do that diminishes within a shaming culture. And what's important about that is that to, you made a point earlier about community is that usually within community, there are norms and their shape and their sanctions, mm-hmm. right? So if you're operating outside of the norms, then there are these sanctions that are opposed. The issue is that these sanctions are everywhere. You can't get away from a sanction, right? Or a slap on a hand for not conforming to norms. So when that happens, people don't fight against the entire community, they flee, they hide. So that becomes the, the bigger issue is because when we hide, we don't actually reveal the context or the nuances of what we're experiencing or what we're dealing with. And in a lot of instances, the financial concern isn't money a lot of times, it's what's underneath the number. So for instance, had a student who was struggling with overspending dining out. So we looked at their transactions and I said, all right, so you're not just going to like Chick-fil-A and some other places really quickly. You're going to like some sit down dining, dining out type settings like a year and a half ago. And I was like, tell me more about these. And the student said, well, you know, this is where my friends like to go. She didn't say this is where I like to go. She said, this is where my friends like to go. And I was like, so tell me more about that. 
she was like, yeah, she was like, we don't get a chance to see each other during the week. So usually on the weekends, we'll try to get together and we'll go, we'll sit down and we'll have dinner and somewhere and things like that. I was like, well, based on your spending plan, it's like, you can't really afford doing it. She was like, I know, but I don't want to disappoint my friends. So the issue wasn't financial. She knew that she couldn't afford mm-hmm. dining out. Her issue is that she didn't want to get kicked out of the tribe. Right. She didn't want to be sanctioned. She didn't want to be the person that's no longer invited or shamed mm-hmm. because literally she's also working. Some of her friends were receiving almost a $500 allowance from their parents every right. month to go and do these things. Mm-hmm. And we had to unpack that for her to say that, hey, some of your friends are in a different socioeconomic status than you. And they're not going to experience the consequences that you're putting yourself in because she was going into credit card debt to keep up. So if she were to come into me, come speak with me, and I was just doing financial counseling or coaching, and all I did is say, stick to the budget. I did not address the issue no, because the issue wasn't the budget. She already knew that she didn't do these things, but the pain of not being accepted by the tribe and shunned by the tribe caused her to make the decision. So roundabout financial empathy is if I'm the tribe and we're empathetic to our friend to say, you know what, that's perfectly okay. We can go grocery shopping and cook together. Mm -hmm. So you don't feel, and what that does is it forces her out of hiding Now she can be her authentic self. She can be okay with knowing that it's okay if I come from different socioeconomic status and this is just where I am. It's not who I am. Right. And one day I will be in a position if she chooses to be able to do these things. So, but what happens though is that people are so afraid of being shamed that they're forced into hiding that we never get a chance to resolve the issue or they double down because they don't want to be kicked out by the tribe. Right. So a lot of my point with that is that when we when we embrace empathy, it's really not just understanding the person, but the systems involved in that person's life, both internally and externally. I've had clients where I would see sporadic behavior in their spending. And because I have family members who've suffered from mental health issues. I can very clearly kind of clue in on if something tends to be like this, right? And then I'll ask, I was like, have you, uh, please don't take this the wrong way, but I've seen this before. Do you have states where you feel really extreme highs and really low lows? It's like, yeah, I feel that way often. Tell me that story a little bit. When you were here with your spending plan, were you on this high, right? When you were here, were you on this low? Because then the issue becomes a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. And I can't help this person unless they address the mental health issue and they have stability and potentially may need to take meds, right? Mm-hmm. So what empathy does is that it takes, there is there is agency in this process. There is part of this where people own what they can own and drive what they can drive. I do not by any means say that that's not the case at all, but that's not a hundred percent of the issue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if this mental illness and you know, somebody's bipolar, can they will themselves mm-hmm. 
And if you've never experienced a family member who's dealing with the bipolar episode, I really want to encourage you right now to go to a, in your community, the best way to develop empathy is to emerge yourself in a situation and actually experience people who are dealing with these issues because you can't walk away from that and say, this doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But what happens is though, when we don't, when we give ourselves the excuse not to be empathetic, we want to assume something that's very consistent and linear about the human condition. And you know, that's not the case for you. I literally, if all your listeners were to share with all your listeners say, you know what, I'm going to pose this to everybody. All of you send me your financials. Mm-hmm. I want to see all of your spending behaviors, all of your patterns, X, Y, and Z. Would you be willing to share that with me? Probably not because you know, it's going to expose something about you that you even have trouble dealing with that you've struggled with for years, but because we can hide it and maybe we're in a better position in life where our title, the car, the house covers this up for right now. I forbid that you experience a financial shock and then you have to really deal with some patterns and behaviors that you have that you won't be able to hide up during that. So what I'm saying is, Let's just be honest. We Nobody's perfect. And just because we're being empathetic doesn't mean we're accepting excuses. It means that we're learning enough about someone's situation in a context to create new solutions. That's the point. Because the way we're doing it is not working. So that's, that's the financial empathy. It's not just the person, but understanding internally and then externally. Does this person have access to banking services? Do they live in a community where if you're African-American, people don't really greet you the way that you would want to be greeted or try to make it difficult for you to bank with them? It's very difficult to see that if you are part of the dominant culture. And I know tons of people, not tons, one in particular, and a few other experiences where someone, Greg, who's a pastor at a church, was mentoring a young lady who was African-American. He had encouraged her to go open a bank account at a bank that he banks with and he knew the owner of, and they wouldn't help her. She came back, she spoke with Greg, and Greg was like, that doesn't sound right because that was never his experience. Yeah. So of course you wouldn't see it. Greg went to the bank with her and just stepped back when they went a second time and he watched them do everything that she said they had done to her the first time. He turned red and it was irate. He walked over to the young lady and said, can I see so-and-so because I need to talk to him. Greg wouldn't have believed it. Now, I'm not going to say that's always the circumstance, right? Sometimes it's just you're working with somebody that day who just has a bad attitude regardless Mm -hmm. of who you are. And then sometimes it can be other elements as well. But again, if we're in certain positions in life and because of our title and our reputation to community, people are not going to treat us the same way that they treat other people who do not have the same type of power and influence, right? So when we're being empathetic, what I'm saying is it actually changes you more than a person that you're empathizing with. Because what it says is I have to step outside of my power and my influence to see the world differently. And And that's the beauty of empathy. A lot of times it's less about your client, it's more about you. Because when you rise up, you can actually help your client rise up as well. 
Oh, your you your work. I again, you said service is what you do, and it's coming through the microphone again. And I really, really like this idea of empathy, and I'm glad you're studying it from a financial context. But again, it applies to so much more, and I can't agree yeah. more. Is like the I think from your TED talk, you talked about the more we understand our stories, the more we can empathize with others. Yeah. And and your example about the mental health situation with bipolar going there and seeing like oh this exists, I think it's is. Real. So powerful. And then to parallel, when you talk about the dominant culture, just might not see things are, are like Greg. Uh, you're, you're, it was Greg, right? The guy in your story? Yes, yes, Greg. yes, yes. Like Greg, like makes this assumption. And those, like you've talked about, those assumptions are hard and they're, they're, they cause barriers to be, I guess, like I said earlier, perpetuated. And I think that concept of understanding that yourself really opens up to, to your communication with other people. And, it, and I got this other quote from you off the internet. And I, it's, I didn't know if I was going to tie it in, but it's exactly what you're talking about. Is All people need is for somebody sitting across uh, the desk from them to care about them. Let's show people we care about them. And let's start here. Then we look at assumptions and race and can be sensitive to how we talk to them. If, I like this part. If we don't care, you'll just give in me a script. You've just yeah. given me a script. Is, is this whole idea of hacking empathy? I think, I think, we, I think we live in a space because they're, they're generally, and based on the research, there are three types of, of empathy, right? There is uh, cognitive empathy, uh, perspective taking. Usually that's what you see is used by car dealerships or whatever it may be. Mm. It's trying to understand enough about the person to be able to close the deal, Right. Then there's emotional empathy where you actually feel as someone feels. And then there's compassionate empathy where like your feelings and your knowledge or either or or both and drive you to action, which is what I think is the culmination of, of empathy. It, it ends with compassion. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's just one of those things where as we as we navigate this space and we and we think about empathy in, in a grand scheme in a grand scheme of things, it's not a hack. Mm-hmm. It's not a hack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I understand the, the language of hack. What a hack says is that I'm externalizing an activity to influence, influence someone else. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is I'm internalizing an activity to actually influence myself in a, in a way so that I can influence someone else. Because then it becomes relational and transactional. And I think that there's health in the middle. But we're doing it for mutual benefit and mutual cause. So if anyone wants to kind of say, oh, I'm interested in this thing because I'm trying to hack, I'm not the person for you. Uh, But if you are really trying to grow as an individual and how to see things, not again to think about somebody as being stuck or you have to basically say there's nothing we can do. No, the beauty is that just like with a chess player, you see this with great chess players. What they do is that they create these situations and positions of a board and they try to figure out what's the most effective way to solve this position. So what empathy does when we open ourselves to it, it allows us to create new positions on a board mm-hmm. to see things differently and then try to figure out how would I work through this scenario? That's what it does. So we actually then can create solutions that actually work with where people are and not where we wish them to be. And that, that kind of becomes the, the, the difference there. And it, but that's hard work, but 
When, but when you enjoy doing what we do, you and I, it's not hard. Mm-hmm. That's why everybody can't do it because we enjoy thinking about the nuances of these things, what other people would consider um, the difficult parts of the work. We don't because that's where the opportunities lie. That's where we create change. If we're, but if we're going to navigate this space by just providing canned recommendations, ignoring context, ignoring resources and capacity of communities because they're different across the board, we saw this with COVID. Mm-hmm. Every state did, does not provide the same amount of unemployment or even for the same length and period of time. Mm-hmm. So literally, people were navigating the pandemic, some with more resources, some with less because of state laws. So you couldn't necessarily say that this was optimal here and it can be optimal everywhere because we're dealing with different resources, time horizons, so on and so forth, right? Uh, So I like to think about this stuff and empathy in and of itself causes us to think. And I I wanna encapsulate this. It's not just external systems, but again, to our point earlier, it's also internal systems. Mm. And we have to be able to see the picture in the micro and the macro to be able to create some space in the middle for growth. It sounds here that in this case, the change comes first from an internal, I guess, shift of the individuals from the empathy level that then will then those individuals are open or their chest they can see the chessboard differently to create those systemic yes. changes. But this is the thing. I don't, I don't think it's one directional. I think it's, I think change is bi-directional, right? right yeah. Because the, the cognitive empathy piece, now I'm, sorry, now I'm talking about the trans-theoretical model, model yeah. of change, can kind of get you to like pre-contemplative and contemplative state. Yeah. So you're still deliberating. You don't know what to believe, but there's enough to cause dissonance. Mm-hmm. But the action of going and engaging with the community hearing stories, navigating spaces that you traditionally wouldn't navigate, maybe going and shopping at a convenience store that's the only store in a community and seeing if your budget goes as far because the prices are marked up. Yeah. Right? So the experience of actually doing then can change behavior just as much because sometimes we're in a position where we're like, I don't know if I believe that, but let me go see it firsthand. Let me go experience it. So it can work both ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, and that's the thing about empathy. A lot of people think it's always emotional. It doesn't always have to be emotional. Sometimes somebody can read a book. Some people are just very logical people. And if you can connect the thread logically, they move. It's not emotional for them. It's logical. We're, well, that's cognitive empathy. Mm-hmm. So for that individual, it's more of being able to connect a thread in a way that they then can be compelled to compassion. But for them, it's not really emotional. It's just that it's the right thing to do. So just because you're not an emotional person doesn't mean that you can't be empathetic. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, we, we miss that piece of it because logic and reasoning can cause someone to be compassionate. And then being emotional can cause for someone to not take any action at all. If, you, if it becomes to a point where it's debilitating, mm-hmm. where you don't know what to do. So there can be an extreme to both, and we just have to have balance in both that should ultimately culminate with compassion. Oh, I feel like we could just hear you <laughs> chat about this for another hour. And I, I mean, I'm trying to be mindful of our time and uh, yeah. oh, we're, we're over our time. Uh, yeah. And I know you're a busy 
professor, and uh, it's such a fascinating topic. Um, and yeah, maybe maybe we'll have to have engage in another conversation because we we've left out so much the money yeah. dogs, um, yeah. um, uh, modem financial, yeah. and yeah, that's so modem solutions is an LLC that I have. Yep. And, um, and it's, it's basically a platform where I, I do provide one-on-one financial coaching. Uh, that's on a limited basis though, uh, yeah. because with, with my primary work as a lecturer and doing research, uh, I don't have the capacity, but I try to reserve those spots and times for low to moderate income households in their communities who just don't have access, access to a competent and compassionate professional. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I try to fill that void for, for those individuals. Uh, but if somebody wants to kind of reach out and just follow me, I'm on Instagram. I'm probably most active there. And my handle is at modem, M-O-D-O-M solutions uh, on Instagram. I also do keynote speeches and uh, speeches for organizations and companies and things of that nature throughout the year. Uh, speaking to empathy, speaking to just financial management in general, uh, even budget. Like, how do we think about budget, budgeting from a relational trans, from a relational point of view, as opposed to just a purely transactional point of view? Because then that goes into the psychology, it goes into brain function, it goes into childhood trauma, even, mm-hmm. uh, and all these things actually influence something as simple as budgeting, but yet. We make it seem as it's a purely transactional thing that has no emotion and weight, but we have to unpack and identify emotion and weight because if we don't, then we never have real meaningful conversations about money with our significant others. Right. Yeah. Think about it. Most households don't have financial intimacy. Mm-hmm. They yep. talk about finances, mm-hmm. but they don't have financial intimacy. They don't understand each other's stories as it relates to money. And what's powerful about that is that when you do, not only can you extend grace with your partner, but you as someone who may be getting on your partner about some type of spending habit or behavior, you can then, because now you know, you can empathize and say, well, let's try this instead. Mm-hmm. Right. In terms of, as, of a way for us to kind of get to where we need to be. But for me not to just put this burden of expectation on you to say, just because I told you that that's enough. Because now you understand the wound that this person is dealing with and you just don't treat it in one day. This is going to take time to heal. And then once it's healed, we still have to be mindful of it uh, as someone is growing with it because then there's a psychological scar. So as someone who is partnering with someone and partnering with someone on this journey, uh, it's important to have that type of intimacy financially uh, just as much as, as we have intimacy in every other area of our life or hopefully we do. Yeah, I think that's so important is we have such a transactional relationship around yeah. our, our finances. And um, yeah, just the, I guess the chronic, the chronic impact that it has to never actually ever be heard your money story or those emotions behind it are, can be debilitating as, as yeah. life goes on. And, and, you know, humans, we want to be heard. And in that example you're giving is someone like, 
always upset maybe about certain issue in the couple's finances. I think to your point about empathy, the more you discover about empathy, you realize, hey, maybe that's not them. That's me. That's like the exactly. problem. <laughs> maybe I'm the stressor. Yeah. <laughs> that's causing cortisol. Yeah. Jump up. And they're coping with that through retail therapy. Yeah. But that's the thing about it is that, and I, but that's the beauty though. I don't, I don't think any of us is stuck. Uh, I will admit, I don't know it all. Uh, I'm constantly vetting the information that I do that I do know with new information. I've had several paradigm shifts over the past five or six years in terms of how I think about people by purely engaging and interacting with people where they are that have changed my assumptions. Uh, even and I'll, I'll end with this: even about uh, different groups of people and who's better with money and who's not. Um, one of the, the worst mistakes I ever made, and I caught myself internally doing this, where I was working with uh, white clients, and I made the assumption that they were just going to need me for very little, and I could just get them on the right track, and then they go. And then actually, once I got into the mix of everything, I was like, whoa, like, something's off here. Right? <laughs> Are you an outlier, or do you actually represent more society's issues with, with money and not being able to manage it. And the more and more I've done this, I've realized that financial issues isn't a black community issue. It's an every community issue. Everybody has financial issues. Mm -hmm. And it's just that my experiences with white culture is that white culture is just better at keeping things behind the veil. That's that's the only difference. Black culture, we'll put it out there. <laughs> we'll let you know that we're trying to get from paycheck to paycheck. White culture, it's like, like I'm doing all right, but behind the scenes, <laughs> it's like hell going on, like with everybody else. Yeah. So it's like it's like the duck. We're sitting on top of the water, being like cool, and underneath it's panic. Exactly. But this is the thing. Everybody experiences it, mm -hmm. and and it makes us. And when we understand that. What it does is that it opens it. For, so, but think about it for, for white culture. If that's the social expectation that I'm supposed to have everything together and you don't, that's a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. So that means like we we're talking about earlier, community norms and sanctions. Mm -hmm. So if that's the weight or expectation of you and you can't live up to that, that will force you into hiding meaning that situations are getting worse before they ever get better because it's the expectation that if you're white, you're supposed to be good with money. You got the 401k, you have, you know, the will set up, you have life insurance, you're, you're right. But that's not, I think Dave Ramsey has pretty clearly shown that that's not the case. <laughs> right. And then if, and right. So there are, there are these nuances and to, to think about that big picture, if you are white it could actually, you could actually be experiencing more stress than you should because of cultural norms. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we have to come to grips with because I can almost guarantee you that you have, because of COVID, we have middle-class white and black families and maybe white families who are less likely to utilize community resources because of the shame right, that's yeah. induced. And they could potentially lose their home and all the equity in their home because they can't make up the back end payments due to some of the national legislation to kind of forego that. And they look and they're looking at this hill that's growing and they know they can't pay it off. 
and someone's lost a job. But yet they don't want to use community resources because those people use it. No, 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 no. That's not how this works. Those people who use those resources are usually people who are working, who have jobs, Mm -hmm. who work in two or three jobs, just like anybody else. And the vast majority of them, if they're taking out loans, pay those back. But we don't tell, we don't, we don't put those narratives out there. So it's, so when we think about these cultural dynamics and things that nature, everybody needs some level of empathy because shame otherwise will cause us to regress, make situations worse, which then has relational dynamic, community dynamic, health dynamic, well-being just across the board. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll stop there. I know I can keep going on this. No, no, I, I, I think I appreciate this because it's, it's information or yeah, information that we need to hear. And as all of us, I like this central theme of developing that empathy and curiosity or that openness. And I see, I hear you, you're, you're very curious. You're very open. Um, but to realize that, yeah, maybe we're not, like you said yourself, you don't know everything, but you're yeah. open and you're curious. Same with every, I think if everyone approaches it is that we're, we don't know everything and to be open to accept new information and how that may or may not be harming or benefiting what's going on right now. Um, I think is really important. And you talk about being open to the cultural norms and your, your examples are, are really, really relevant that if we aren't open and curious to investigate that there's different types of norms across cultures, across different um, family generations is that, you know, we, we have those blinders on back to our conversation of just being blind and you're um, not making that open chess play that you talked about. So, Absolutely. Um, well, I, I think I, again, I said this before, I could hear you continue <laughs> to talk all morning. Well, it's in an afternoon where you are now. Yeah, morning, I know, right? <laughs> um, but my, my last question for you is, Let's fast forward till you're 90 years old, looking back on the story that you've created in your life. If you were writing a letter to, I know you have children, but to your children's children, and the letter was around how to navigate your money relationship in the context of your story, what would you write in that letter? Yeah, I, um, and actually, so, so, and if, if I were thinking about this from the perspective of my, my children's children, mm-hmm. right, I would write the letter to my children, not my children's children. Okay. Very, I think very important here um, because I, I personally feel as if, and this is, this is the faith element of me, is that I think that unconditional love is, the, is, 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 is really the, the foundation that you want to build any type of conversation on, whether it's health and wellness, financial wellness, whatever it may be. Uh, so I would write the letter to my boys to say beyond the money piece, like there's tons of information, like we can, we can YouTube all day money stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But there's going to be fewer conversations that's going to talk about wholeness, and what it means to be whole as a person. And if there's any lasting legacy, honestly, that I would want my boys to, to take from me, it isn't the money stuff. It's unconditional love. And if, if, if my boys can take that from me, 
to love if they choose to get married and have children, love them and their wives unconditionally, love on their children unconditionally, love on their community unconditionally, then I think that everything else takes care of itself. Because I what I've, a lot of people where a lot of people struggle with money is the where. And I think that if we ask why enough, we get to the where, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, if you have a relationship with your wife or you snap or she snaps and you're like, where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> right. It wasn't her. It was all these different things or with my wife, right. That yeah. I'm not aware somebody made her upset at work, whatever it may be. Right. And I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> so when we ask why enough, we get to the where. And if your foundation in the way in which you manage money the way in which you lead others, the way in which you embrace your community and your neighbor is based on unconditional love. I'm good. Mm-hmm. Because what happens on the flip side, so we don't talk about this, is that somebody can be a great saver, but saving the where is fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even though they're saving and we would promote that behavior across the board as being excellent behavior, but if they're saving out of fear, are they really living a fulfilled life? Meaning that they don't have the capacity to enjoy the present because they're constantly thinking about some fearful thing that may be happening in the future. Is, is that healthy? So we can have optimal financial behaviors, but the where behind these behaviors is very important. And if that's out of love, I know unconditional love. I know that marketers kind of circling back here, recall, won't have the power to create these emotional and psychological deficits of self. Mm-hmm. If I know that unconditional love is the foundation, I know that they'll engage in not just transactional, but relational relationships mm-hmm. with people and others. If it's unconditional love, I know that they won't make money the chief of objective of their life. Mm-hmm. And it's just simply a conduit because of unconditional love, they learn how to love themselves and be okay with themselves, that they can actually live a fulfilled life with however little or however much money they aspire to have. So I would really write the letter to my boys to say, don't forget unconditional love and forgiveness and sow that into your children and then build layers of these financial wellness conversations from there. uh, Because the where is just as important as the what. And I'll just leave it there. I really, really like that. Um, So often we focus on the end goal of being the money, but like you talked about earlier, money's just a, you didn't say tool, but essentially you said a tool. And I think that unconditional love, yeah, I can't say it, it takes care of everything else. And the richest man in terms of wealth who has no community, no connections, isn't so rich. It's, it's, um, it's, it's incredibly unfortunate. I I've had the opportunity of having conversations with, with the pastor of my church. And again, this is when people are forced to hide, they don't have open conversations. And my my pastor told me not too long ago, he was saying that, you know, I speak, he was like, I, I engage with so many men who get to 45 and 50 and they've been incredibly successful in business and other areas but they feel incredibly empty. Yeah. And we do not, again, we don't have those conversations because our culture promotes that your happiness, happiness is directly tethered to achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for some, it absolutely can be if they're following their authentic self. 
Uh, but for a lot of people, it may not. And guess what? It's okay. We all don't need $5 million nest eggs, right? Or even $2 million nest eggs. It really depends on our goals for our lives, how simply we want to live or how extravagant we want to live. That's for each individual person to decide. And once you decide that, structure your life accordingly to be able to achieve that end. Um, but there isn't a cookie cutter approach to what success and satisfaction and joy looks like or feels like. Mm-hmm. Everybody's different and it's okay to be different. Like I said, on the weekends, I enjoy reading. Mm-hmm. Some people may consider that lame. I love it. I'm okay with that. It's, yeah. And it's actually a very cheap hobby. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't spend a lot of money in those spaces, but no. again, I digress. <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, you, you really remind me, and I, I don't have the quote precise, but it basically, um, content is rich or content is wealthy. And um, the, like the yes. idea of having... But it's not settling. Though. Not settling, not settling. Content with what you have, yeah. but we're still wanting that people, achievement. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I say this all the time. Uh, contentment equal, contentment leads to more. And the, the reason why that is, is that if you're content, it just means that you have joy in what you're doing. And when you have joy, you actually care about what you're doing and you actually care about the people that you're doing something for. And if you do that long enough, people take notice and say, we need more of you, <laughs> right? Yeah. So your contentment actually leads to opportunity. It's not settling. And I think people get that wrong uh, mm-hmm. because if you genuinely enjoy what you're doing, you're going to study, you're going to research, you're going to run analyses, you're going to do these things that nobody else wants to do because you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And that therein becomes your value. And the more you do it, the more value you produce for yourself and others, which ultimately leads to greater financial gains as well. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of that word from that context, not settling. Uh, I, I, I appreciate the focus on not settling. I am so grateful that you decided to spend some time with us. So unfortunately, our internet connection went wild and the last couple of minutes never turned out. However, I would really like you to go check out Dr. Michael Thomas at his website at modemsolutions.com. That's M-O-D-O-M solutions.com and that stands for money and wisdom and also you can find him on instagram at the same name modem solutions on instagram where he does post some activity and i have looked at it and some great content finally i really would like everyone to go over to the show notes and click on the link for dr michael thomas's tedx talk on financial empathy understanding the story behind the numbers Well, thank you so much for tuning in again this week. If you've been enjoying this content, please head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review as they really help to attract new guests like Dr. Michael Thomas. Until next time, have a great week.